I'm speaking to you from the beyond. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to Center Ed Teaching. We're glad that you've decided to join us today. Just a reminder, um, if you have not already done so, please subscribe, like, rate um, our podcast so that we can move up in Apple's world of importance. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you haven't um, subscribed. Subscribe, subscribe. Um, but additionally... all the time. But additionally, if you uh, want access to the resources that we've been talking about the show, remember you can go to cpet.tc.columbia.edu. Um, today's podcast, we're going to kind of switch gears from all that talk about student assessment and talk about maybe a different form of assessment in the teacher evaluation process. Um, I have some strong feelings on this, so... I can't go. I can't go. <laughs> so Wait, shocked. Matt, shocked, is, this, is this our policy pod? I, I, yeah, it is. I, yeah, I was trying to make like a blinker noise, but I can't do that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I go, wee, wee, wee. <laughs> um, yeah, it's so, a thing. Yeah, we are, we, we, we are going to talk uh, a little bit of policy here today. And so to do that, uh, I am joined by Brian on my left. Hey, y'all. Denise on my right. Hello. And from the far out reaches of the interweb... Uh, Roberta is coming to us. Hello. 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 <laughs> um, so to get uh, into this podcast today, kind of what we want to first start out talking about is what actually the teacher evaluation process um, is in general, what's its purpose, what's its uh, what it is used for, and then we want to move kind of into um, a specific evaluation process using the NYC uh, teacher evaluation rubric to talk about um, teacher evaluation in a general sense, but also kind of some of the specificity that you might need to pay attention to for your particular district. And then we want to wrap up our discussion thinking about, okay, now that we have this information about teacher evaluation, how does that maybe, if at all, um, change our practice? So to start out, I think it'd be nice to just have a quick whip around and hear from everyone, like, why do you think we have teacher evaluation and what is the purpose of this process? Matt, we are in such an era of accountability, and it's been building and building and building over the last 15 or 20 years. So it's not too surprising that teacher evaluation is one of those qualities that has gotten a lot of attention over the past few years. And I, I think that one of the reasons that it's become so important is early research that, that was done that indicated that quality teachers was one of the biggest factors that made an impact on student achievement. And it wasn't the money, it wasn't the resources, it wasn't the curriculum that they had, it wasn't the number of assemblies that they had, but it was about having a quality teacher in the room with students. It wasn't class size, but it was effective teachers. And once that research came out and really policymakers got a hold of it, then looking at their teacher evaluation systems became really, really important. In particular, in New York State, when they went a few years ago and did some new laws around teacher evaluation, it was the first time the evaluation system had been changed in something like 65 or 80 years. Um, so we've been going decades with the same, the same performance ratings and the same performance process. And really, we know a lot more about education now. And, that, and that's super important, right? Because the reality is, is for a long time, teachers had... Um, the challenge of being taken seriously as professionals. And just like every other profession and every other industry, there are standards. And so there should, 
the intention I, I'm thinking was that there was to create this understanding of what does it mean to um, have a standard for the practice of teaching, right? And so then teachers then had to be evaluated against that standard. Yeah, and in addition to the accountability, the sort of the more rose-colored glasses version of this is it gives teacher leaders an opportunity to um, assess teacher practice and offer opportunities for professional development. So teacher leaders um, need to do their formative assessment just like teachers do, and then once they know where teachers are in uh, their their development as a, as a professional, then they can meet them uh, and cultivate those strengths and help teachers become better. Yeah, I think I agree with everything that's been said, and I think there also is something that we have to think about in terms of, you know, education is always lauded as one of the most important things in the country for students to have a successful life. And so we often have schools that are quote unquote failing. And so there needs to be something uh, done to improve those schools. But it's so hard with education and learning that's so not tangible to be able to say, you know, who can we place the blame with or who can we praise for student achievement so it's this idea not just of accountability but actually that teachers are the ones to be held accountable um, because they can have the most impact kind of like you said Roberta. Um, One of the things in the current discourse about uh, the teacher evaluation process is what kind of method to use and the one that's been gaining the most traction Uh, is the value-added system. So the idea that the teacher evaluation is going to look at what value is being added to student work. Um, So for instance, if you have a test at the beginning of the year that students score a 6 out of 10 on, and then at the end of the year they take the same test and get an 8 out of 10, your value added is 2 points, right? Whatever that means. And so that's a very simplistic version of how this is shaped in practice. But to give you an idea um, of what administrators, what district officials, what state policymakers are looking for. And so, um, Roberta, I was wondering, can you maybe speak to what are some of the pros of this approach? Yes. So some of the pros are that we are able to identify with more precision and with a little bit more clarity and with a little bit more explicitness what our values are around the best practices in teaching and learning and that researchers are using sound research models to you know look at wide ranges of classes and teachers and are able to identify the most promising practices and the places where we're seeing the most learning happen and share and communicate about that across you know across the United States around the world and that we're really able to learn and grow from one another And in doing that, then we're able to make growth and we're able to change our practice and evolve our practice in new ways, which should move our students, which should help them to have a better life. And kumbaya, rainbows and skittles, everybody's better. Uh, I think that with policymakers in particular, education is really complicated and it's very hard to be able to tease apart well, what's the student role and what's the teacher's role and what's the parent's role? And if you're not careful, you get into a lot of finger pointing, you know, like what's the principal doing? Well, the principal says it's the teachers. The teachers say it's the students and and then they say it's the parents. And then it's like, well, in first grade or the year before, the year before. 
So these models really help to say, let's let's be honest and be responsible for our role in our classes um, and use a research-based framework in order to evaluate you know, that I am or am not and be able to implement these promising practices. Yeah, and so I think a lot of what you stated there is the reason why this value-added system is gaining traction and more and more states are using it. I do think it's worth noting, right, some of the pushback here that when we talk about what value is a teacher adding, that's really hard to gauge because you may have a student that's coming to school and their school identity is not a positive one and they don't put forth the effort and they start having these really negative thoughts that are harmful to them and you as a teacher help that student, right? Often in these value-added models, um, the work, the social work of what you're doing often goes unnoticed, mm-hmm. right? And that's an extreme example, but you can also talk about introducing kids to new ideas that maybe help them find new passions, right? Like that's not in here, but that is value added. Um, there's also... Oh, oh, I just wanted to add that what what on the one hand, we can have all these positive things, but I think you're right that how it's implemented has a big impact as well, right? And that what might be with the intention of helping everybody to grow can actually result in a lot of what feels like finger pointing and what feels like blaming teachers for struggling schools and struggling communities. And that the the system like this is sort of set up to um, sort of turn teachers into bad guys uh, who just aren't good at their job and that's why our schools are failing and it's a really easy crutch for uh, you know policymakers or the media or whomever to sort of demonize um, the work that teachers are doing when they're really going into some of the hardest places and and working their hearts out uh, for the betterment of the kids yeah and, and I think one other um, constant pushback that comes up to this is that these value-added systems lack context, right? A teacher will say, I'm observed once or twice a year, and then my data is looked at, and that's where my value is determined in that data, um, not considering the student's previous school experiences, right? Maybe they grew three grade levels last year, and so a three-grade level growth this year might be more difficult given some other constraints, or... um, X student missed this many days, right? So without that context, right, it, it becomes hard as a teacher to totally advocate for yourself. Um, New York, however, is trying to do some interesting work around this where they are using the value-added model but also trying to provide um, more context to these observations. And part of that is in the process, which we'll get to in just a moment, but also in how they're kind of conceptualizing the teacher evaluation process. And so what's been uh, the metric for this evaluation process has been the Danielson framework. Um, So Brian, can you speak to give us an overview of what the Danielson framework is and how that impacts the teacher evaluation process? Sure. The uh, Charlotte Danielson uh, framework for teaching breaks teaching practice down into four general domains. The first is planning. The second is culture and management of students, the third is instruction, and the fourth is professional practice. Um, Teachers in New York City and other jurisdictions are evaluated using a rubric that was developed from this framework 
Um, I often joke around, uh, say that the Danielson framework was trying to describe uh, what she perceived to be excellent teaching, and that the rubric is sort of like a weaponized version of that. It's how teachers are measured, essentially. Um, now, uh, most of the teacher evaluation, uh, most of the, the weight of that evaluation falls in domains two and three, um, which are the domains where I would gather the most evidence in teachers' classroom. Domain two, culture and management, is to what extent do teachers set up um, uh, systems that help uh, gen uh, create and cultivate a uh, culture of um, a, a community of learning? Um, and then also, how do they manage students' uh, behaviors when they drift off task? And then domain three has to do with instruction, um, and it asks teachers, uh, or it evaluates how well teachers foster questioning and discussion among uh, the students, how, to the, the degree to which students are engaged in learning, um, and then finally, how teachers use um, their assessment practices to inform their instruction. So um, in New York City, they're... Teachers are evaluated on an eight-trait rubric that falls into these four domains, um, but that's sort of the the big picture of um, how it's uh, uh, how New York City, at least, is trying to um, quantify or qualify. Mm -hmm. I'm not much of a researcher myself. Um, excellent teaching. Yeah, and so I guess I have follow-up questions, and this can be for anyone around here. So you're talking about under culture and management, creating an environment of respect and rapport. Mm -hmm. What would an administrator be looking for? How is that something that can be demonstrated and evaluated? Because I, I feel like a lot of teachers are thinking, okay, well, you know it when you know it. Like, mm -hmm. how are you putting this into a finite evaluation? Well, it's also, it's interesting because that's one of the things that becomes um, a bit of a, a, a point of friction because oftentimes there's mixed messaging and or there's different understandings um, of what that means and or looks like. Mm. And so particularly creating an environment of respect and rapport, you are rated highly if you not only um, establish rules, like say classroom rules, mm. but hold space so that the students then begin to respect each other and begin to kind of call each other out when the behaviors go against the rules, the school rules, but also creating space to continue to circle back to the norms. Um, things like managing student behavior, a very popular thing right now is positive behavior um, interventions. So it's not um, making a student feel shame, but really calling them to kind of restore um, the agreements you made by saying, yes, I'm going to be part of this learning community and I'm going to hold the space. And so if I do something that disrupts that, then how do I come back to that, um, that space where I was back in agreement? Um, so it's really interesting how some of these can have um, uh, kind of amorphous language if you're mm. like, sticking straight to the rubric, and that's why it's so important to make sure that everyone's saying the same things in conversation. I, I would add that we're also seeing a lot more training, uh, especially because it's new, a lot more training of supervisors, APs, and principals who are receiving training and how to interpret and then also identify these traits within the framework and use those in their evaluations. And so one of the things that is very important around this new form of, assess of assessing teachers are low inference observations. So rather than going in and taking a few notes and saying like, oh yeah, it was a good lesson, I give it a pass, uh, administ administrators now are required to take pretty good notes about not how they feel it was, but rather what's happening. So this student is calling out, they're interrupting each other, you know, three students have their head down, 
you asked the student to sit up, they said, F you, miss, right? And then you use those low inference notes to um, identify where the teacher is falling in the rubric or where the lesson is falling in the rubric. And that those low inference notes, those things that taking down just the facts of these are the things that happened are a really powerful tool in having the conversation with the teachers because we can agree or disagree that it was a good lesson or not a good lesson. It was better than my regular lessons or it was one of my worst lessons ever. Um, but a lot of that has to do with my feeling in the moment and it's based on my perception. So keeping the evaluations really grounded in those low inference observations is a, is a really key point. Yeah, and I think, I think this also kind of falls very neatly into the same conversation that we've previously had about um, what the Common Core is asking um, students to be able to do, which is when an evaluator um, uh, arrives at a rating for a teacher, they are making a claim. And mm -hmm. what the Danielson rubric is meant to do is compel those evaluators to uh, justify their claims with evidence. And that evidence is, as Roberta said, the low inference observations from the classroom. So it's meant to sort of standardize and clarify to an extent um, what is going on in the classroom, what a, uh, an evaluator is looking for, and then once they've gathered that evidence, if I see X, Y, Z, that brings me to a rating of highly effective, effective, etc. So what I'm hearing, and push back if what I'm hearing is wrong, but <clears throat> Roberta... You know what, we will. <laughs> <laughs> what you're saying, Roberta, right, is that um, administrators are being trained to, I'm going to look very much on the surface level, what are actions that happen, and not ascribe any uh, interpretation, any emotion... Uh, any indication about why I might think that'll be happening. From there, to your point, Denise, we'll look at that objective thing and talk about whether or not that actually demonstrates creating an environment of respect and rapport. So, for instance, if a student uh, speaks out of turn, the teacher gives a look and the student gets quiet and resumes work. The administrator would write that down no inference about that, then you would come together in the evaluation process and you would say, see, this demonstrates respect and rapport because that student knew the classroom rules to not talk out um, and then get back to work. Am I understanding that correctly or is, am I missing something? More or less, more or less that, you know, um, that the instance you described would fall less under respect and rapport and more mm -hmm. under managing student behavior. Okay. Um, but that's exactly the sort of thing. As an evaluator, when I see that vignette that you described, mm -hmm. I then look to the rubric and say, okay, based on what I saw, and I go to criterion 2D, is it, I believe, the, the managing student behavior, I can say, this is evidence that the student is effect, or the teacher is effective at managing student behavior. Mm. And is there a number of instances that an administrator would need to see that happen? Is it a plus-minus game where there are two instances where student behavior is effectively managed and one where it's not? H how does that work? That's why um, it's important to know the rubric because there are several. There are places where things, terms like several is there mm. or often or usually, and those things are not quantifiable, right? Mm. And so is it two times? Because if I did it two times and then we haven't come to an agreement, well, then you were looking for the third time before mm. then I became um, that next bump up, right? So I went from developing to effective. 
I would have been um, effective had it been three times versus two times. And that's um, some of the conversation that it can devolve into. But if there's a shared understanding, like I'm looking to see evidence that, Mm -hmm. then we can start, because again, Children don't typically do well with kind of like, you know, improv. Right. <laughs> so and neither be, do adults. Yeah. So, <laughs> so it's very clear if you go into a classroom that there, ha- there are um, breadcrumbs that led mm. to this type of um, a, the possibility of seeing a vignette like that. Um, definitely more to an environment of respect and rapport. There might be a, a signal that was given to that student because maybe mm. that student is working on some um, self-management. So there's a signal, and it's a silly signal, and no one laughs, but that kid gets right to it. That's respecting the student's journey, but it's also respecting the space of the learning community. I think that discussing the individual traits is so important for schools to do and for administrators to do with their teachers because it isn't really unpacking what these indicators are, what they mean, and what they look like at every level. That's so important. And if we start to say, like, oh, you did it two times, that's enough, you know, what, I'm going to only ask two out of the five kids to sit up because they've got their heads down. Well, mm-hmm. I did it two times, so shouldn't I be effective now when I let three go? That And this is the thing that makes teacher evaluation so difficult is because the teacher, you, you, can't, I, you can't evaluate a teacher in isolation. Teachers are always doing their work in the context of the day, how hot it is, how cold it is. If there's a bee, oh my gosh, one year I had bees in my classroom. Yeah. And, you know, the whole class left up. I had good, I had good rapport, okay? Okay. I had good rapport, but when you, if there's a bee in your room, there's not a lot you can do to keep up kids from screaming and running around. So it's so, so, so complicated to extract, again, tease out the different constraints and the different complications and all these networks of people and circumstances and contexts to really understand the moves that the teacher is making. So understanding the rubric and saying, like, we can't get everything, but this is what we know and understand, and this is what we, this is our best thinking about what what quality, highly effective teaching looks like, and how many ways can we implement that into our classrooms. And it's it's in the conversation that is going to move people the most, much more than the reading, in my opinion. Well, and so I think we'll come back to this as we talk about the process, because I still think there's a lot to mine there, but... I think it is also important to mention that there's another part, at least, of the New York City teacher evaluation, and that's the measures of student learning. Um, So, Roberta, can you speak to a little bit what that's like, uh, why it is the way that it is? Yeah, measures of student learning is part of the New York State teacher evaluation system that was implemented uh, a couple years ago, 2012, 2013. It became state law and and basically what it says is that teachers aren't, are evaluated through multiple measures. And it's a, it's a real firm belief. And I give New York State and New York City a lot of credit for the way that they approach this, this policy. Policy pod! Sorry, I had to. So the way that they did that is to say that you can't, the teaching is so complex, you cannot possibly evaluate it using a single measure, using mm-hmm. a single assessment, using you know, one type of metric, you need to have multiple measures. And so the idea that part of a teacher's, part of what makes an effective teacher is their actual live performance, and I say performance in air quotes, um, but their live performance with their students. And that's the measures of teacher practice. And using that framework helps teachers and administrators to basically have an agreed set of terms that they can um, agree to and set that evaluation by. 
measures of student learning is the other component. And, and that's the part that says, if you really are a high level teacher, then we should be seeing academic progress with your students. They should either be hitting performance standards or they should be closing the achievement gap. And the way to measure that is through student learning. And the way to measure student learning is through assessments. And the best assessments that they have to measure those things are typically standardized assessments or citywide or local assessments that are given so that there's equity across schools and equity across classrooms. In the past, the, the, the New York State and New York City and the union have gone through iteration after iteration after iteration of trying to figure out what is the most fair system. And the most recent system basically ends up splitting measures of teacher practice with measures of student learning in half and saying that both are, are equally weighted um, in evaluating a whole teacher's performance. So in short, and then I'm getting to the question, I'm getting to your answer. <laughs> I know it sounds like I'm doing a lot, but the context I think is important. So measures of student learning then, teachers in a grade level in the subject area select one assessment that, that will measure their performance. Um, it might be their state test. It might be a local assessment. So New York City has developed a series of assessments in the four content areas and is expanding to uh, arts, actually. Um, so you might choose one of those assessments. And then the question will be, how much do those students grow from last year to this year? Or how much do they grow from the beginning of the year to the end of the year? And their rate of growth is going to be used to evaluate the teacher's performance. And that is the measure of student learning. <laughs> right, and so I think one thing that's also important to pull out that um, as far as I know, New York City's option for teachers to choose what the assessment measure is is actually something that's pretty progressive compared to other places where a particular test is prescribed, whether it's... Um, MEEP or uh, the state test or, or yeah. what have you. So I think that is something to highlight that is new, unique to New York. But it's it's absolutely something that's important to highlight. And, and it's not just that the city is flexible, but actually the policy that the city has built in is that within this at the school level, there are sort of a host of, of assessments that are, are viable options, sort of a menu of assessments, if you will. And at the school level, every single teacher is put into either a subject area, a subject area and a grade level, and, and they all can choose their own individual ones. So you don't even have to agree with everybody in your department about what your assessment measure will be. Everyone can choose the one that's best. You do have to work within teams of teachers who teach the exact same grade and the exact same subject. But beyond that, there's a lot of choice for teachers to be able to select the measurement that they think is going to best reflect the work that they've done with their students. So love it or hate it, I agree that it is a, the most progressive and the most flexible model of indirect assessment that, I, that I've seen. Um, so getting in more to the New York City model, and the, this does uh, expand to other district models as well, but the process of teacher evaluation. So the way that it's supposed to look um, in previous practice is there's a pre-meeting, there's planning, talk with the administrator or the evaluator um, to 
uh, get some of that common language, right? Mm -hmm. You were talking about, Denise, understand what that process will look like. Mm -hmm. Then there's the observations, maybe a mid-year conversation. How are you progressing? What do you need to work on? Mm -hmm. Then there are more observations and then end-of-year conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not going to go into the details, but in New York City, there's actually variation depending on your rating from last year, Mm -hmm. how many times uh, you have to be um, observed, and then even regardless of your uh, previous rating from the year before, you have some choice in what those observations look like. But the goal should be, or what you should be thinking about for your own teacher evaluation process, is that these conversations with the administrator and the evaluator are necessary to come to that common language and be able to work towards growth as opposed to this just being an evaluation measure that puts a label on you as opposed to something that you've made together with your evaluator. Mm -hmm. I don't know if we have other opinions on that or if I'm just kind of riffing here. No, that's very very valid. And it's important to recognize that no matter what... um, system you choose that it's part it's all part of the process you know there's not one that's better than the other because they're um, value adds for each mm. one and so it's important to recognize that all of it is inside of um, making sure that there's growth um, inside of the teaching practice but also the administrative practice right because you have to support these teachers no matter what system they choose and so that's important to recognize that you know this is an opportunity to uh, keep integrity with whatever mm. the system and follow it all the way through. Don't think someone chose maybe to be observed a few less times, then it's like, oh, whew, great. No, there's still some accountability there that, that stands. And so sometimes uh, on both sides, I'm not saying that like teachers are like, Whew. you know, that's one less mm-hmm. time that my administrator's in the room, but just to be mindful that it, uh, it is all a process and mm. it's all in service to making sure that the students get the kind of education that they need. One of the things that's important to note is that anytime you have a policy, you know, the implications on the ground may or may not be foreseeable. And one of the major things that happened that I don't know was a super foreseeable consequence was the pressure, especially on APs and, and principals, when the evaluation system changed. Prior to Mosul and MOTP, teachers were evaluated uh, twice per year if you were a new untenured teacher and one time per year if you were a tenured teacher with satisfactory rating. So on a staff of 30 at a small school, say let's see, you have a staff of 30, the, te- the principal and the APs have to do approximately 30 to 60 evaluations within a school year of 180 days, right? So a couple times a week, you go into a couple teachers' classrooms. It's not that big of a deal. But with this new system, the minimum time you're going to see a teacher is four times in a year. Mm-hmm. So if you have a staff of 30 and you have to see everybody a minimum a minimum of four times, it's 120 visits that you have to do and 120 write-ups that you have to do, that's almost a, a visit a day. Mm-hmm. That's really, really, really time-consuming, and it's placed an extremely high burden on our APs and our principals who are trying to figure out how do I get all these observations done And when you have a lot to do, you don't always have as much time to take. You don't always take that time to have those conversations. And so then we're really just writing lots of memos to teachers about this is how your rating was and this is what you need to do differently and see you in a couple of weeks. You may or may not expect me. And I think that that pressure to get them all done, you know, I'm glad that teachers are being seen more. And that's something that really speaks to teachers. Like, how do you know how I'm doing? You come here once a year. I got observed on the last week of school, literally, was so the first I. time the yeah. principal had ever seen me. <laughs> and he gave me great feedback about not letting kids use permanent markers. 
that's okay. <laughs> that's another story. That's another story for another day. Yeah. But, but just one of those unintended consequences. So here we have this system that's really about you know, formative assessment and feedback for teachers and, and creating more opportunities for them to have conversations with their administrators. And in fact, our administrators are so burdened by the weight of all of the observations that they have to do that a lot of those conversations aren't happening or they're not happening at a deep level. Yeah, and, and those opportunities are, are more common now that the the Danielson rubric only has eight traits. A few years ago, uh, principals were evaluating teachers against 22 traits. Yep. Um, and that just the 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 burden that that put, as you said, Roberta, on uh, evaluators was just incredible. So there was no time to do instructional leadership because evaluators are too busy filing the paperwork yep. based on their observations. Yeah, I mean, for me, this is kind of getting off track. But since we are saying that this is a policy pod, I think policy one pod. one thing that's important to know about this being. Uh, New York City's evaluation rubric is that the union has a lot of power in these negotiations. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there are a lot of districts that don't necessarily have that union strength um, to be able to do this. So a lot of the advancement that you're seeing where teachers are being evaluated more because that's what they want, right? They don't want a teacher or a principal to come in one time for 10 minutes and write them an evaluation for the year that determines their employment. Um, so you have that advocation. And so I, I don't want to necessarily explicitly say anything, but I think if you're a teacher in your district, something to pay attention to is the strength of the union, the strength of negotiations for what the evaluation process looks like and who are the players there. Because in some districts where you may have uh, more conservative views of government in trying to get rid of teacher pensions, um, it can very quickly turn into certain teachers get bad reviews and certain teachers yeah. don't get bad reviews. Um, and that's exactly what a research-based framework is trying to re- to, to resolve, mm-hmm. right, is the, the sort of favoritism or you just don't like me when there's no rubric to base my evaluation from. Yeah, I just didn't like you and I just don't like your lesson and there's nothing that says that that's not good enough, right? Yeah. Um, so moving away from that and more back into... Uh, the more micro level day-to-day for a teacher, um, but for the school in generally, um, if I'm a principal, <laughs> why do I care about evaluations? It's so important to be aware of where your teachers are on the continuum of teaching. And more importantly than just knowing where they are, you have to recognize that so you recognize where your responsibilities lie in terms of support. Because just like you differentiate instruction for students, it's super important to differentiate instruction for your staff because you cannot um, expect to coach a seasoned veteran teacher in the same ways in which you coach and, and, and support a new teacher. They're, they're, they're just bringing completely different um, needs to the table. And so, and it's gonna look very differently in the classroom because some people just have things that rock and roll in their classrooms and you have other things that really need to be teased out and supported. So um, super important to kind of be aware uh, of where teachers are falling. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that might be helpful also for schools to think about this evaluation process in terms of the obligations of administrations and not just the obligations of educators. Um, well, I guess principals are educators. But mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of bias sneaking through there, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Um, and more of them are going back into the classroom, too. So just, just yeah. saying. Um, 
for the better population if I'm a teacher. Uh huh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do I? What do, why do I care about that? Well, I, I think I, I think I like hinted at this at the top of the pod or said it explicitly, um, which is there's a sort of a two pronged side of it. The sort of idealistic side, which is um, teachers ought to care about their evaluations because this is the feedback that they get from their instructional leader that they can use to help improve their practice. Um, but the flip side of that is um, like their very employment or mm. decisions about tenure are based on these uh, evaluations. So uh, just as surely as a student needs to know how to play the game when it comes to standardized testing, teachers also need to know how to play the game when it comes to their evaluations. Um, not to say that it's all about putting on a dog and pony show so you can make sure you get tenure or you don't lose your job, but to the extent that your continued employment depends on how you perform against certain metrics, you better know what those metrics are and how to offer evidence that you are meeting and or exceeding them. And also it's important to recognize that um, particularly in New York State, it has a lot of implications for um, other opportunities. So your ability to do summer school or Mm. get um, overtime is impacted by your rating. Um, and even your ability to leave a school because you have um, you're you're in the wrong you're in the wrong story. This mm-hmm. is not the school for you. Your your evaluation determines whether or not you can easily move on. So it's really important to kind of understand how all of this works, so that you're you're being as um, as much in your agency as you can possibly be. And on the more like idealistic or altruistic side because it will help you be a better teacher, right? Um, and and I, I, I often say that most people, you know, have been in the education field, I'm like approaching my 20th year anniversary, and I feel like most people that I 99% met want to be good at their job, right? Like nobody wants to be bad at their job. And so you want to pay attention to how you're being evaluated because... This is the metric in which is, tell, is helping you to know how closely am I a- approaching the top of my field. And most people want to do well in their job. And most teachers, you know, want their kids to succeed. And they recognize that their hard work and their effort, the work that they do in their classroom, is is it going to have a direct impact on their student success. And so I think we've been talking a lot um, about the teacher evaluation process as a binary, right? You have the evaluator and the teacher. But someone else, at least in New York State and a few other states who has access to this information is parents. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a parent, why do I care about this evaluation process? Oh, Matt. Okay, boys. Yeah, step aside and let the mom talk. Yeah, right? Like, for real. Um, In many cases... I have a fur child, by the way. (laughs) Listen, that counts. (laughs) That counts, too. Um, But it determines where you send your your, your kids to school, right? It determines... uh, how the partnership works, right? Because we, you know, every parent will tell you that they're in partnership with the teacher. And so if you know that the teacher is rated highly effective, there's a lot of trust that you will hold so that if the teacher's trying something innovative is not, what is this? It's like, huh, what is this? And so that's a very different tone to bring to conversations. But if the teacher hasn't been rated as effective, there's a little bit of, hmm, you know, and so there's a little bit more 
kind of okay so I've got to double check and that's another layer of accountability that sometimes a struggling teacher may not necessarily um, it may not be a value to them at that time and not saying that it isn't a value but it may not be the best thing for them at that time and so that circles back to the administration being very very particular about how they're supporting um, their teachers. So I hear what you're saying is that it gives parents an insight into what's going on and that may change the way they navigate that relationship but then it comes full circle because if that teacher maybe doesn't have the best evaluation it's on the principal out of obligation to that parent to help that teacher succeed rather than letting them wallow where they are exactly that makes sense um and so like we've touched on this a little bit but brian has some pretty strong thoughts about as a teacher why it's important that you know the process for your district. Um, and instead of setting that up, Brian, I guess I'll let you just go off on that. Yeah, the, the bottom line there is um, I often turn to a, a, a term that comes to us from the business world, which kind of makes mm. me itch a little bit. But um, there's often uh, said that uh, employees need to learn how to manage up. That is to say, how do you manage your managers? Um, and I think that... Um, comes to bear here when you're dealing with teacher evaluation. Um, I'll give you a very sort of specific example. Danielson trait 3B speaks about questioning and discussion Mm -hmm. um, and holds that, um, you know, the best teaching involves student-to-student conversation and students generating higher-order questions, right? So if I know that that's the case and I'm doing that in my classroom, but I want to make sure that my evaluator sees my good work and my hard work, then I would, on my lesson plan document, create a field that says higher order questions or Mm. student to student discussion and then describe what I'm doing in that lesson. Um, That way I'm signposting, another business term, um, for my evaluators. I am offering you evidence that I am meeting the criteria for effective or highly effective teaching. Meanwhile, um, if you know you're going to be observed on that given day, you can have a couple of higher order questions, literally or figuratively, in your back pocket and at some point while your evaluator is in the room, pull out and say, okay, students, I have a higher order question for you that I will offer, and then I'm going to ask you to generate your own. That way, just put a big gold star on all of the little all the little pieces of evidence that your evaluator needs, needs to determine that you are an effective teacher. So knowing the, the rules of the game and actually communicating that you are doing it um, is super, super important. Because often teachers will say, oh, I was doing that, you just didn't see it um, when they receive an evaluation that they they don't like, a rating they don't like. Um, Well, make sure that they see it. Don't leave it to chance. Really put it on display um, and manage up. So what I'm hearing you saying (laughs) is that a teacher knows what's being looked for, knows the rules of the game, and then instead of changing their practice, they conform their practice to the rules of the game. Yeah, it's, I think it's more um, messaging than uh, a change in messaging than it is in a change in um, form or content, right? Teachers will continue to use their professional judgment to plan lessons that help the most number of students improve the most, right? They, they know their students, they know their content, they need to, to do the work accordingly. Um, that said, they also need to point out to their evaluators um, that that this work um, conforms to the expectations of whatever evaluation system 
that is being used. So, I mean, I, I, I might be the only one, but I'm hearing this and I'm wondering, doesn't this make the evaluation process um, able to be manipulated by certain individuals? Because if you know what, what is being looked for, you know when your observation is happening, you can manipulate those facets to be in your lesson for, for the day. Am I wrong in thinking that? or? I mean, unfortunately, there are people who will play the game because they see a game. And the, and, and that's a, an unfortunate thing, right? Because it's obviously a system that was, was made with good intentions. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge becomes, how do you step away from that? Because for a long time when this first came up, that was the game. You mm -hmm. know, there was a dog and pony show. Everyone said, yes, 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 I don't care, but make sure this is what it looks like, right? When schools were being evaluated, because then that made the principal look good. Mm -hmm. But then, so, then the backlash became, but that's not authentic and that's not what I really do. So I think more what Brian is trying to say is inside of signposting is not calling out something inauthentic, but making sure that there is an awareness that you will see this because there's a, is the, the training is that you will see low inference notes. But sometimes something happened right before you came into my room, so you may not be open to all of the low inferencing mm. things that you may see. So signposting really is just an opportunity for me to make sure as the teacher who's written this lesson plan that you are aware of all of the opportunities that you have to take these low inferencing notes of all the magical things that are happening in the classroom as the unicorns go by. <laughs> right? Well, yeah. a lot of the teaching moves that you make are in your mind and it's about the intention behind your decisions and they're not always visible in the 15 minutes that your administrator happens to be there. So you can, you know, and then you want to remember that even in a small school, my AP or my principal is going to see 120 lessons this year. So how can I make it, their job just a little bit easier by making sure that the things that I really need to, to demonstrate are very clear and are very visible? And I got to say, if not in the process of doing that, it's going to help it be more visible for your kids, too. Right. <laughs> so yeah. there's, right. there's something to be said about that. Um, but I wanted to go back to, Matt, your question around, like, can can, the, can you really gain the system? Can I say that I'm doing it and not really change my practice? I think that what we're advocating, or at least what I would advocate, is that by knowing and understanding what the framework what the framework says and, and what it's articulating as high, effective and highly effective practice, that should change your practice if you aren't already doing it. And if you are doing it, then you want to just be equipped with the language so that if, if that isn't seen by the administrator, you're able to take up that conversation. I think where we've seen teachers struggle is, number one, not knowing the rubric. So they don't really know what criteria they're being evaluated on. Then earning a low rating and being so sort of blindsided by the low rating and kind of seeing red that they can't even have a conversation with their administrator or hear any of the feedback because they're so upset, mm -hmm. but n still not really understanding what it is that they're not doing well or what it is that they should be doing differently. So our, our push to say, like, know the rubric, know and understand how you're being evaluated, know and understand the criteria for success in your industry, it first should have that self-reflective moment of, like, am I doing these things? Do I, do I check for understanding? How do I know my students are learning <laughs> during the lesson? That should be the very first thing. And the second thing, and, and I agree with you, Brian, helping 
your whoever is evaluating you to see I'm doing it here and here and here and here and here um, so that you guys can have uh, the same conversation about the lesson. Well, I, I want to also talk about the other side of this because I think a lot of what you're saying with this signposting also is assuming that you have a just evaluator mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that isn't necessarily always the case. Um, however, if you know this information, when you come across an unjust evaluator, you know what to do, um, to, to prove yourself. Uh, so like my personal experience, what the principal would do is at the beginning of the year, everyone seemingly got pretty low ratings. She would maybe visit your class once or twice a year for a total of five minutes. Then at the end of the year, everyone would have an evaluation where they seemingly grew under her wow, majestic she's leadership. Such a good school leader, yeah. man. Yeah. Yeah. Whole school grew in the course of one year. And so for me, um, this was the first evaluation was pretty shocking and pretty uh, defeating to to who I was as a teacher, especially yeah. within my first year of teaching. And so I began um, collecting student work on a regular basis so that on the rubric that we had, I could prove myself to be a highly effective teacher um, in all the areas that I could. And so when the end of the year evaluation came around or came around and I still wasn't highly effective in some areas where I thought I had demonstrated that, I brought in my, you know, five inch thick binder and went through step by step. And sadly to say that didn't necessarily leverage. Mm everything and I think the other part of that is going back to what we were talking to with union help right like knowing who can be the mediation knowing who can be the third party observer uh, for this evaluation process for you and knowing that you're not alone because as a teacher it can often feel stacked against you mm-hmm. but if you have this information it can be incredibly uh, empowering mm-hmm. um, and so we've talked about like how to use this knowledge But the question that I have, and I think a lot of teachers that I talk with have, is do I readjust my classroom um, based on this evaluation process? Uh, Do do I do particular things because I know that they're part of the evaluation, even though that's not who I am as a teacher? Or how do I navigate that fine line? I mean, is is the Danielson framework what I should always be thinking about? Yeah, I think it's an interesting um, statement you made, who I am as a teacher, mm. right? Like, that's, that's a, a very interesting question, because, like, if who I am as, the t- as a teacher is that I'm a lecturer, mm. that I'm not sure is a sort of a, a thing you want to necessarily, like, fall back on and hold on to and say, this is my teaching identity, um, just because um, so much research um, shows that lecture is not necessarily the most effective uh, mode of teaching. So um, I think that uh, uh, while it's important to not not fake it, right, not put on a dog and pony show just so you can get the, the marks that you need, um, uh, that's, that's the, the game playing I mentioned before. I think there's something to be said for what, as Roberta mentioned, um, letting this evaluation process actually inform your practice and help you become better at what you're doing. Um, if you disagree with the Danielson framework or as teaching, uh, as how it describes highly effective teaching, um, I think that might be an interesting opportunity for you to do a little bit of um, reflection and inquiry into what you think is 
highly effective teaching. Um, and if you haven't sort of thought that through in a very thorough and um, uh, complete way, um, let your objections to whatever teacher evaluation system you're currently being uh, um, subjected to, let your objections guide some questions and some inquiry on your part as a, as a professional. That's a really good, that's a really good framing. I have a shorter answer, <laughs> which is a dream, which is a miracle. My, my answer is just, you should only adjust your teaching if you want a good rating, right? Mm. Because that's what's going to happen. If you don't adjust your teaching and you're not lining up with the rubric, then you will not receive a, a higher rating. And as we identified before, that has a list of consequences that may or may not be a factor to the person. Um, if you have a fundamental disagreement with the framework and wh how it's positioning, what effective and highly effective looks like, I agree with you, Brian. We have to take up those conversations, have those conversations, and really consider our own practice. Um, but, but if you don't care about your rating and you think you're just doing the best thing in the world and the kids are learning, then, you know, you do you, I guess. <laughs> but, um, but the shift towards a research-based framework is a support on both sides. And if we think about I like to think that administrators and teachers are on the same team and it's the team of the kids. Mm. I know that in practicality, that's not always the, that's not always the case. And sometimes the teacher evaluation system can be manipulated or it can be um, misused. And Brian, you talked about it in a good way when you says like loaded, what is that? A loaded gun? What was that? Uh, weaponized. How that, how the Weaponized. Well, apparently, <laughs> so it can be weaponized um, in an inappropriate way. But the the rubric there is actually support to both sides. It can be manipulated by both sides. It can be misused by both sides. But it is a support. And so, in your situation, um, Matt, maybe not in your specific situation, but for teachers who feel like my evaluator just doesn't like me then really get to know the rubric because the rubric is your friend. It's the, it's an objective. It, it's not, um, it's subjective in what it's describing, but we can agree to the facts of what is on the rubric and how it describes what effective teaching looks like. And I should be able to use that. And likewise for principals who are very concerned about teacher practice and they're really not meeting the needs of their students. They no longer have to figure out how am I going to say this to you or how am I going to describe it or what things am I going to point out. They can go to the rubric and they can pull it out and say, hey, it's here and here and here and here and here and this is what happened in your classroom. It's not my opinion. It's, it's, you know, it's based on this framework. And so it, it really is a mediator between sides when there is tension. Okay, I guess it wasn't a short answer, but it had a short start and a longer justification. I just want to jump in and speak to that subjectivity. Um, it's really important that the the idea of readjusting is, is a little troubling to me because when you're setting up your classroom, you have to recognize that everyone that's going to participate in your classroom doesn't sit in it every day. Mm -hmm. So it's important to make sure that you are very clear about kind of your understandings and the, the, the reflection that you've done so that there's clear understanding of what your vision is so that you can begin to have a conversation so that we're both understanding what things should look like because there's very subjective language and that's often the, the places where it becomes kind of contentious because it's like, well, I didn't see it. You didn't do it. Oh, yes, I did. 
well, if we had a, a normed understanding of what it would look like, then I can make decisions like, okay, well, is that where I'm going? Is that what I believe in? What else could I do that's more in line with my teacher identity that meets that? And so that we're agreeing that this is what it should look like and this is my um, activity that goes toward that, if, if that makes sense. So that's a really Im important thing to, to consider when you're setting up your classroom, that there are many more people in than just the students that are sitting in, in your classroom. Yeah, I, I guess for me, this is a, a really complicated issue because I do understand for your livelihood um, that you do want to adapt and you do want to make that clarity uh, for the administrators so that the evaluation process can go smoothly. But it also seems that it coerces your instruction to look a particular way. And one of the metrics that like I always thought about was the assessment of student growth. And so I was an English teacher. And the brunt of uh, the assessments had to be with writing essays. Mm -hmm. And my administrators, district officials, were not going to go through essays to see that growth. Mm -hmm. um, right, And this metric would often come down to... Um, standardized tests, which per chance, you know, happened to have gone well for me. Had they not, though, had there been something else there, th there wasn't this belief that this assessment that takes longer to grade and is possibly more indicative of student growth it is not worthy uh, of measure in that. And so yeah. I, I, I guess I want to speak to teachers that are having tensions and that teachers that realize that they do need to improve their practice, right? I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination I was anywhere near a perfect teacher, but there are some things that because the rubric tries to be a little more quantitative and uh, more evidentiary in a way that's easy to articulate, it, it does compromise mm -hmm. um, the classroom a little bit. And I think my biggest beef with the, with the Danielson framework in particular, and we could go, there are other research-based frameworks that evaluate teacher education, so we wanna give, you know, put all the weight on Charlotte. They're all a little bit different and they have different focal points, but, but the Danielson framework is one of the more popular and more comprehensive frameworks. My concern with it, and I think it's something that you're raising, is that it is a standardized framework but I have never been in a standardized class or met a standardized teacher or seen a group of standardized students. Mm -hmm. It is devoid of content. I'm sorry, it is devoid of context. And so when I look at teacher performance in an AP 12th grade history class, and then I look at the ninth grade, you know, uh, Algebra. biology class or I look at the ninth grade English, or the 10th grade class of repeating algebra students, mm -hmm. right? Those classes are going to look different. Um, and it's because the students are bringing with them different skills and what a teacher can accomplish within a month or two months or six months with students from different backgrounds and different skill sets and different learning abilities. You know, look at a special education classroom where you have you know, 10 students with, with severe learning or emotional disabilities and you compare that to the AP class, well, this teacher didn't have them doing class discussions all day. The students weren't self-actualized and making suggestions to other people and the teacher's pulling their hair out going, you don't understand. They sat and they read a story for 20 minutes and they have never read anything before in this class all year. That, that's a testament to that teacher. That's a testament to their growth and to their effectiveness. And they shouldn't be dinged because the context of the classroom doesn't isn't standardized. 
and, and that's a concern that I have around sort of saying that all classrooms should look a certain way. And if they don't look that way, they're not effective or they're not highly effective without considering the classroom, the context, uh, and the growth of the students or the teacher. Um, so we are getting low on time here. So we've ended on a more somber note than we began. Um, are there any final thoughts uh, about this topic as we wrap up today's pod? Yeah, I would encourage teachers who are um, perhaps um, find the the evaluation rubric to be um, mystifying um, to take it for a test drive. Um, I've often done with early career teachers, um, shown them a 15-minute video of a teacher teaching and then asked them to rate it according to the Danielson rubric. Um, if you have a teacher who uh, in your same school who um, is willing to let you go into the class and uh, try it on for size, then... Um, conduct an observation and um, I think it, it's helpful for teachers because they see like just how difficult it is to really capture everything that's going on in a classroom in a 15 to 30 or even an hour long um, observation um, and I think once teachers get a chance to actually do the thing that is being done to them in using this rubric then um, it really does sort of um, help them get a better understanding of the whole process and how they might um, how they might effectively be part of that process. And to continue on with that, it's also really empowering when you are sitting at a table and you know what is in the rubric. I don't know how many times I've worked with teachers mm -hmm. who kind of have the general overview or like the, the one sheet, right? It's good to go a little deeper into the language because again, it then speaks to um, finding spaces where you can kind of be that kind of educator you want to be, right? It's not all prescriptive, right? It's not all, um, you know, one size fits all. There is space to kind of bring that teacher magic to the table. And so it's important that you know where those places are. And then you also, again, norm the conversation, right? There's nothing worse than sitting at a table where, this was the best lesson. And then the principal's like, so what do you think went well? And you're like, oh, my life, just wow. So that's that's the only thing I would say, just so that you're empowered at the table and you're sitting at you know at a, t at a chair that, that, that is at the same level as the administrator. You don't feel like you're being talked at. You're in conversation. Mm -hmm. Super important. For me, it's that policies have implications on real people's lives. You know, this simple law about what percentage of the teacher's evaluation should be from observations and a research-based framework and what percent should come from student achievement. You know, oh, let's just, you know, we're just going to switch up teacher evaluation. Uh, New York City and New York State has been in contention around this for three or four years, every year making tweaks and changes. And I think we're getting to a better place, um, but it's really, really hard. And in the pilot studies, you know, teachers left their, they, they left teaching because mm -hmm. their rating was printed up in the newspaper mm -hmm. and the metrics were bad. They were just flat out wrong. So policies have real implications for real teachers' lives and we can't mess around with that and just think, oh, yeah, oh, good, and, and, and walk away. We have to really be careful about thinking about implementation and, and be careful about thinking whether that's, you know, at the, at the governor's office or at the mayor's office or at the chancellor's office or in the principal's office thinking about how am I going to talk to my teachers about 
their lessons and about our evaluation process, how we're going to work through these tensions around ratings and power dynamics, and just just talk about it and recognize that, you know, people are afraid for, literally afraid for their lives. You know, single, you know, teachers who are single parents and they're the sole earner for their, for their kids or, you know, people who are starting their lives or, you know, they have to have that job. And when something threatens that, it's really, really, really scary. And we need to just recognize the humanity um, in all of us as we talk about this work. I, I think for me, the the last thought and maybe the first thought for me whenever I think about evaluations, I've said I have some strong feelings about this, is in part the evaluation process is separate. We often try to preach to teachers that like this should be connected to your teaching, but it is a separate thing that is placed on top of your teaching. And if you can find places where there are connections that it can work, that you can integrate your evaluation feedback into your own personal reflection for growth. Uh, if you can incorporate practices in your lesson plans that make things more explicit for the evaluation process in a way that's natural and not so mismatched, um, I think you can really leverage the evaluation process, one, um, just for your own livelihood and keeping your job, but then two, using it as that constant reminder that you do have to push yourself. Um, mm -hmm. I had a college professor who was, she was flat out amazing. And what she said was every semester she tried to learn something new because mm -hmm. the idea was kids are learning something new every day. And when you're a teacher, you're often going in doing the same thing over. You forget how hard it is to learn mm. and how hard it is to grow. But if you're constantly challenging yourself, right, you can develop this empathy and become a better teacher. And I think instead of always taking on something new, constantly reflecting on your own teaching practice and using that to push you forward and think about things differently um, can be really helpful. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> um, so that's all, <laughs> that's, that's all the time that we have uh, today. You can check out um, some more helpful guides on teacher evaluations in our show notes at cpet.tc.columbia.edu. Uh, make sure to tune in next week. And in the meantime, subscribe, like, review. Um, hit us with your best shot, as Pat Benatar would say. Matt, can I make a shameless plug while we're here? Sure. Um, if you are soon to be graduating from <laughs> teacher's college and entering yes. teaching or, or if you're a teacher's college alum and your first three years of teaching, you are eligible for free professional development support what? as part of the new teacher network. NTN. Whoop, whoop. It from, comes with a beard. It does come with a beard. Um, <laughs> or from, an afro. Or, there you go. Anyways, while you're on our website looking for those resources, click over to the New Teacher Network page, check us out, and sign up. Yeah, sign up. there's some Subscribe. like great blogs over there, too. Mm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right, uh, thanks for joining us, guys, and have a great weekend. Bye. Bye, y'all. Love you.